Funding for Smart Talk is provided by Capital Blue Cross. For 80 years, Capital Blue Cross has offered products that provide peace of mind and promote good health. Focused on creating a healthier future for our communities through innovations like its Capital Blue Health and Wellness Centers that provide in-person service and inspire healthy living. Capital Blue Cross is behind you for whatever lies ahead. More information is at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross. Live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health Spine Institute, part of UPMC Pinnacle, offering a complete range of services to diagnose and treat your spine condition. More information is available at upmcpinnacle.com spine. Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Harrisburg University of Science and Technology has announced plans for a $130 to $150 million expansion that includes a 200,000-square-foot space in the capital, maybe even a tower that uh, will be 36 stories high, would make it the, make it the t- tallest building in the city of Harrisburg, and also expansion to Center City, Philadelphia, for a satellite campus. Joining us to talk about the expansion plans today is Harrisburg University President Dr. Eric Dar, Dr. Dar, welcome to the program. Good morning, Scott. If you have a question or a comment, this is a big project. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Two-part question. Uh, why do you want to expand, and do you need to expand? Um, first part, uh, the reason to expand is uh, our movement into creation of health sciences. So nursing, pharmaceutical sciences, allied health, a uh, whole range of careers and degree programs to cover those careers. And that movement is really driven by three health systems in our region, uh, three of the biggest health systems, and their inability to uh, really put together a workforce to serve us, the population. And so when hospitals are on bed holds, because they can't find enough nurses or because they can't find enough professional workers, uh, that's a problem not only for them but all, for all of us. And so, um, you know, it's not as if we woke up one day and said health sciences make sense. It's because these large employers are struggling to find the workers they need. And so for us, it makes sense to move into the health science field. Having said that, our building in Harrisburg uh, right now, serving the programs that we have in place, uh, is jam-packed and uh, have no room, no facilities to support movement into health sciences. And so it naturally leads to then the need to create a new facility to house the new programs. And, you know, you're talking about uh, a relatively new building, right? Yeah, correct. Uh, we moved into the building uh, on 4th and Market in Harrisburg uh, in 2009, um, finished uh, two additional floors in that building uh, last year, uh, the building has a capacity for about 2,000 students. Uh, the university will approach uh, having 6,000 students next year. Um, so we're already out of space as we speak, let alone think about a major new project that may be two or three years uh, out before it's realized. So in the interim, we're going to be scrambling for student housing space and for classroom space and uh, how to ex- uh, meet the needs of our growing uh, student base. You mentioned that uh, this is in cooperation or maybe even partnership with uh, uh, some of uh, you know the health providers in, in uh, central Pennsylvania, some of the biggest health mm-hmm. providers in central Pennsylvania. What's needed? What did they say to you? You mentioned nurses, but mm-hmm. uh, what else besides nurses? What other positions, what other training is needed? Well, just sticking with nurses for a moment. So so there's the nurses that we may be all familiar with, or at least we think we're familiar with. But more and more nurses or those that have been trained as nurses take on other roles in, in hospital systems. And that is to lead quality assurance and quality improvement uh, efforts, to lead the implementation of new technologies, to lead the integration of clinical-facing technologies with more back-of-the-office type of technologies. Um, All of that work is often um, led by nurses who themselves don't have the necessary training because that's not what they went to school for. So for us, it's a natural extension from our technology programs that we've had in place for many years to kind of blend nursing with technology uh, both at the undergrad level, but more, uh, if you think from a leadership perspective, at the graduate level. So that's uh, an expansion of not just a, a typical uh, BSN, but uh, to other advanced degrees in nursing that are of a different type than I think you can see almost anywhere else. 
Uh, beyond that is the role of pharmaceutical sciences in health uh, care. Um, what does that mean? Uh, again, thinking about new education in pharmaceutical science um, from, say, chemistry-based to biology-based, uh, new therapies, new treatments, new drugs uh, that are based uh, in a whole different uh, way than uh, drugs historically. That means, again, a whole new uh, set of professional workers that are needed. And then there's the uh, a whole set of other careers, the operation of sophisticated machines, the implementation of sophisticated technologies, all of these things that we see in our health systems that let us live longer, but are ever more complex in terms of how they get implemented. Healthcare is one of the few industries that uh, is growing, uh, not only in this region, but uh, across the country. And part of that has to do, I'm sure, with an aging population, especially here in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's uh, population is getting older. But why Harrisburg University? I mean, there are other nursing schools in the region. Uh, there's a medical school at Penn State, uh, Hershey. Why Harrisburg University? Well, again, I just look at the employers and say, um, listen to their needs. And yes, there are great nursing programs that have been in place for many years. Um, uh, and if they were meeting the need, then we wouldn't uh, move into the space. But uh, from the employer's perspective, uh, they don't. They can't get enough, and they can't get what they need in terms of uh, the training that the nurses receive. So, you know, it's either you know turn a blind eye in some sense and and hope for the best, or or as an educational institution, jump in and do something about it. So it's not as if you know what's in place is uh, is, is is bad. Uh, you know, as a judgment, uh, it, that's not it at all. It's just that there's just not enough. Uh, and particularly not enough with a technology flavor, if you will, uh, in the healthcare space. And, and that makes sense to us. When you say a technology flavor, I have to admit that when I first heard about these plans, I was thinking, okay, Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, where does the science, where does the technology part come in? Science, is it's an easy explanation. But what about technology? So if you think about, you know, in any health system today, um, from the health records, the electronic health records that uh, that are um, implemented in various p stages and pieces and parts and <laughs> uh, of success uh, to the uh, actual equipment itself uh, and its sophistication and how it's integrated, the use of data uh, that gets collected about us as patients over time, how that data is used to influence and hopefully improve outcomes over time and maybe even, uh, heaven forbid, decrease the cost of health care. Yeah, heaven um, forbid. Y y you know, data analytics becomes ever more important uh, in our own care and in the care that health systems provide. And all of that is enabled by more and more technology. And if the technology doesn't, in, doesn't allow that, then that's a, that's, a, that's a significant problem. And so that's what I mean by technology. So it's not just, you know, how does one... Uh, pay attention to the vital signs of a patient or understand anatomy of a, of a human. It's about the role of technology in providing care to us as patients. Now, let's talk about the project itself. Probably the part of it that has gotten the most attention when you talk about the physical plans for this expansion is a tower that would be uh, 30, uh, 36 stories tall. Talk about that and what other uh, physical expansion plans you have? Well, so we did a um, feasibility study this summer uh, for a multi-use building. There would be the health science educational piece that we've just talked about. But for a lot of reasons, we believe that a, a, a hotel and some student housing as part of the project um, makes sense, all, all kind of wrapped and integrated together. And so if you put those three pieces together, it, it uh, um, creates a facility and a building that is uh, of scale that, uh, that, that you noted. Um, I think, in, I guess in theory, you could put together just a square uh, block of a building uh, that's that's not uh, overly attractive, and maybe you could all squeeze it down to you know 18 stories or something. But uh, you know who wants to do that? So um, for us, it's an opportunity. Uh, it's a significant project that we're undertaking, and and uh, so why not? Uh, you know, in some sense, reach for the sky, if you will. Ten stories taller than any uh, any building in Harrisburg now. 
Correct. Uh, would be the tallest building between Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. So, uh, are you going to charge people to go to the top and take pictures and all that kind of thing? <laughs> um, you know, a variety of uh, interesting ideas about what you put on the top of a 36-story <laughs> building overlooking the Susquehanna, right? <laughs> so, we'll take uh, you know, uh, you know, early deposits on uh, you know New Year's Eve parties, Scott. Right? So. <laughs> well, there are a lot of uses for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you mentioned the hotel. How does a university, an educational institution, get involved with a hotel? And right. It's a boutique hotel, from what I understand. Uh, it, it, that, again, it, 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 we'll see what kind of a hotel, uh, if a hotel becomes part of the project. But um, the way our graduate programs work, uh, we bring um, 1,800 to 2,000 students to the city of Harrisburg uh, three weekends every month. Last Friday and Saturday, 1,800 students. Um, from all over the United States, flew, drove, took trains to come to Harrisburg. They need hotel space. They need rooms for the Friday night, Saturday night that they're here in Harrisburg. Um, the hotels in the region uh, are enjoying that right now. And so for us, you know, uh, uh, pitching to a hotel operator and owner saying, look, I, we can fill the rooms for you in the, on the weekends, which are typically slow periods for a hotel operator. You fill it during the week. Um, so economically, from that perspective, we think it makes sense, and it makes sense for our types of students. It also makes sense from a health science perspective to the, to the extent that we're a block away from UPMC Harrisburg, uh, a Pinnacle in Harrisburg. Um, that's one of our partners. We expect to do more with them over time in that particular part of Harrisburg. Um, so families of patients that are in long-term care, um, residents that may come in uh, and take our programs and be part of the health system uh, there in Harrisburg, uh, there are a lot of uses for why a hotel makes sense for us. Restaurant also. I also understand that uh, you're, you're looking at, uh, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better word, a gym right. that uh, where people can go and work out. So it's not just a hotel. There are some other things that people wouldn't normally associate with an educational right. institution. Right. Well, if you think about moving into the physical therapy uh, educational world, then, uh, you know, a fitness facility makes sense. I, I think, you know, what we proposed in terms of uh, – uh, our, our RFP, or as we're going through a, a request for proposals for developers for this project, was we're not thinking about this just as a as a, a site or an educational site. We're looking at this as a as an anchor facility that changes that part of the city, that particular part of the city of Harrisburg, and so amenities that can be included in the project will attract other amenities and other service providers and other sorts of businesses to that part of Harrisburg. And if you look at other hospitals and educational facilities in other cities, um, service providers, whether those are outpatient services of a variety of type, um, set up shop and, and establish businesses in and around those locations. And so you could imagine, you know, in the next three to five years, that part of Harrisburg becoming even more of a healthcare corridor than it is today with a, a whole set of other service providers setting up shop around this new building uh, and tied to what UPMC Pinnacle is already doing. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who is studying a new surgical technique that allows surgeons to make repairs to the heart without having to open the chest cavity and while the heart is beating. Info at upmcpinnacle.com. Welcome back to Smart Talk. Our guest today during this portion of the program is Dr. Eric Dar, president of Harrisburg University of Sciences and Technology. We're talking about a major expansion in downtown Harrisburg, and a little bit later we'll be talking about expanding to the city of Philadelphia as well. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You can leave a question or a comment on WITF's Facebook page on Twitter, we are at Smart Talk WITF. Again, that phone number, 1-800-729-7532. Dr. Dar, you mentioned something just before the break, a word you used, anchor. And many, many cities across this country, including Harrisburg, Lancaster, York, 
all have what many people describe as anchor institutions. What responsibility does a university, does a healthcare facility, a hospital, uh, schools, what responsibility does an anchor institution have? Um, well, I'll, I'll tell you the way we think about that. Um, that is uh, to provide and give back to the community that we're settled in and mm, think about our planning and and the activities that we do in the long term. So it's not just for us what's short term in the best interest of Harrisburg University, but it's what in the longer term may be in the best interests of the community around us, the city and the broader community. And so that means... Um, the types of partners that we engage in, our outreach to small businesses, our support for the creation of new businesses that create new jobs, and to the extent possible, uh, attract those businesses to settle in the city um, in proximity to Harrisburg University. That's our great leverage is our ability to say, look, particularly to technology-oriented new startups, um, if you want to set up shop, set up shop in, in near us in the city. Uh, real estate is relatively speaking inexpensive. Uh, we will provide students and faculty to help your business. Uh, the business hopefully will grow and expand, pay taxes, uh, employ people, and uh, generally create uh, you know a better uh, economic situation for all of us. And so, you know, right now we help incubate, accelerate, whatever words you want to use, uh, eight different co technology companies, a uh, uh, data analytics business. You know, these are all new business types to the city of, of Harrisburg and I think represent, uh, you know, the growing future of what we can do in terms of not just the healthcare corridor that I talked about, but also a technology corridor. So, you know, we do these things not because, you know, it, it generates money necessarily for each you, but we do it because it's the good and right thing to do for the city of Harrisburg. So a university president has to be thinking about more than just educating students. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's, uh, you know, you live in a community, you support a community, the community around you hopefully supports you. Uh, yes, you, you care uh, about the education of your students, but it's the employees of the institution, where they live, how they live. Uh, your partners. Uh, it, it's a very intricate, interconnected uh, ecosystem. There are many colleges and universities across this country, including right here in our region and the state, where there is a shrinking number of students, that uh, their, their student population is not as big as it once was. What about Harrisburg University? Um, as I mentioned, we will approach 6,000 students next year. Uh, we have about 5,300 right now degree students, uh, another four, 500 non-degree professional development type students. Um, compare that to 2012, just five years ago, and we had about 550 students. So why the rapid expansion in a world where you noted, Scott, right, others are losing uh, their students? Well, we have, as you noted before, a focus on science and technology. That's where students want to pursue education. That's where careers are going. That's where family-sustaining, family-life-changing uh, earnings can be made. Um, we've tried very hard over the years to keep education as affordable as possible. We've not had a tuition increase in five years. Um, I, I dare you to find anybody else that can say the same thing, right? So, um, so. It's the type of programs, it's our focus on careers, and it's the affordability and accessibility of our programs um, has allowed us to expand uh, over time. So you're talking about a major expansion here, 130 to $150 million. Mm -hmm. When you think of universities and colleges and you think about that kind of expansion, there are probably a lot of students, many parents, who are wondering, okay, what does this do to our tuitions? Uh, does this mean that we will be paying more? Hmm. So the bottom line question is, where's the money going to come from to pay for this expansion? Uh, and the simple, uh, you know, sounds, uh, you know, trite answer is I'd, I'm not exactly sure. But uh, this is why you have other components in the project. This is why you have a hotel. And this is why you have student housing, because um, the university is not going to own those pieces. Um, or operate those pieces. We're an educational institution, so we don't own and operate hotels or student housing. Um, the student housing that we now have in Harrisburg is owned by a third party. So we would expect in this project 
that the hotel owner and a, and a student housing owner would bring money and bring uh, revenue from those pieces of the project. We would have to finance our part of the project. So call that, if we're going to use round numbers of $150 million, call it a third, a third, a third, $50 million for the educational piece, 50 for the hotel, 50 for the student housing. That means, you know, from our perspective, from Harrisburg University, 50 million is a is a doable number. Um, our first building was 75 million. So this educational space, while the entire project may be double the size, our part of it may actually be slightly smaller in terms of the, the bite that we're trying to take here. Um, and so that's the trick, uh, is to bring together all of these different pieces to make a, a big project possible. But the ultimate question for those students who are wondering about tuitions, right. will this expansion project cost students more money? The, the you know, again, without promising what's going to happen three years from now, um, the answer is the revenue from... Uh, the new types of students, remember, this is about creating a new whole educational part of Harrisburg University, health sciences part, which would mean hundreds and hundreds of new students just paying tuition and fees for that particular part of our education. So the, I, I would say our thinking right now is the answer is no. This, the, the cost of this building is not going to influence a student's tuition. Students' tuition may go up for a lot of other reasons because the federal government cuts grant funding or because the state cuts grant funding or other, you know, things that may or may not happen. But the cost of this building will have little to no impact on our thinking with regard to a student's tuition. Let's take a phone call from Sven and Carlisle. Sven, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I have a quick question uh, regarding sort of uh, future plans in, uh, in, in Harrisburg. Uh, I've worked in higher ed for uh, many years, and I'm just sort of curious, uh, at what point do you see the money that's used for sort of the gentrification of Harrisburg, uh, better used to support uh, maybe more students, more diverse students, uh, and things like that. Thank you very much for your call, Sven. Well, we're quite proud about our undergraduate uh, demographics. Uh, Again, we focus on science and technology. Um, Half of our undergraduate population are women. This this most recent year, 55% of our incoming freshmen were African-American students in science and technology. That's, those numbers are unheard of across the United States with regard to science and technology programs. So uh, part of the reason for the founding of Harrisburg University was to provide access to those that otherwise wouldn't have access to science and technology education, um, read women and minorities. And we're quite proud of our track record and what we've been able to do. And so as our student base and our student population grows, um, we're able to provide more resource, more support for students that wouldn't otherwise have access to a science and technology education. An- another note on diversity is Harrisburg University has students from 80 different countries. I think it, it is good for the economy, good for the city of Harrisburg, and good for the region to have a more global perspective uh, and to have more contact and more influence and more um, uh, interplay with Uh, countries from around the world, um, that's part of what I think will help build the economy here in central PA. If we're able to attract major technology companies from around the world, as an example, to set up an office of their business here in Harrisburg or here in central PA, that only benefits all of us. With that many uh, countries represented around the world, are you concerned about immigration tightening? Um, yes, uh, we pay great attention to it. Um, our international students come to us largely as transfer students. That means they came into the United States to pursue an education at some other university in the United States, University of Alabama, Minnesota, you name it. We, we get transfers from all 50 states. They come into the United States, they start an education at some other university, they hear about our programs and the cost of our programs and the quality of our programs, the location of Harrisburg being so close to Philadelphia and Baltimore and New York, and they transfer to our university. So last year, um, we had 2,600 new students start at, uni- at Harrisburg University. Um, that uh, kind of speaks for itself in terms of what the market thinks about our programs and the quality and the cost and, frankly, the location from a convenience perspective. 
everything you're describing, uh, Dr. Darb, sounds like a success story of how much the university has grown over the last few years. But it wasn't that long ago there were stories about uh, the, the university having financial difficulties. What happened? Um, well, we were a startup. Uh, we are a startup business like any other business. Um, don't fool yourselves. You know, we are a private, uh, nonprofit uh, university. And as I joke, you know, nonprofit is a tax status. It's not a business objective. And so, <laughs> you know, we uh, but we suffered the ills of a startup. And, and, and as a university, you have to put in place the infrastructure to act like a university. You have to put in place a building and classrooms and hire librarians and registrars and teachers and, and faculty. And it doesn't matter exactly how many students you have to. You have to have all of those pieces in place. And so it took a while for us to build a enough revenue from tuition and other sources to cover those basic costs. Um, but beyond that, it took a while for us to build a reputation. So from the very beginning, uh, we hired world-class faculty. Um, it took a while for those faculty to create programs and for the programs to be known and for word of mouth to happen. And now that we're you know 11 years old, more than a decade in, um, that word of mouth and that awareness um, particularly around the world, particularly in technology circles. So if you go to, you know, places like northern New Jersey uh, or New York City uh, and you talk to those that are in the data science world, you know, we just put in place a Ph.D. program in data science in September. We have 20 Ph.D. students in data science. There are very few Ph.D. programs in data science around the world. If you go to those places and you talk to those that are in the data science business, they know Harrisburg University. They know Harrisburg University more than they know other world-class universities that may be in Pennsylvania. So it's, such, it's partially, you know, Scott, the question is twofold. You know, it took time, and we had to get past the startup costs. We only have a few minutes left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. But I did want to mention the expansion into Philadelphia. So it's not just downtown Harrisburg, but tell us about what you're planning for the city of Philadelphia right. as well. So, again, historically, because we've provided access to students that otherwise wouldn't have it to science and technology, we have now 300 students out of the Philadelphia School District that attend ha uh, classes in Harrisburg. And those are students that, that we can provide them tuition, all the tuition help in the world, but maybe they don't even have enough resource to pay for housing in the city of Harrisburg. And so for us... Um, to set up shop in Harrisburg to allow, I mean, in Philadelphia, to allow students to take all of our programming directly in Philadelphia and still live at home um, was a goal. And so we uh, just cut the ribbon on a 40,000-square-foot facility uh, right across the street from the community college in Philadelphia, and we expect to serve uh, students out of Philadelphia School District, but also students that graduate uh, from CCP, Community College of Philadelphia. They walk, walk across the street and they finish a bachelor's degree at Harrisburg University. Dr. Eric Dar, president of Harrisburg University of Science and Technology, thank you very much for being with us today. Scott, thank Good you very luck. much. Good luck. Thank you. You're thank listening you. to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. The temperature is expected to dip into the teens tonight, and pet owners are reminded this weather is extreme for pets to be outside. A recent law will enforce penalties for tethering dogs and other pets for too long in not just extreme weather, but any time. Joining us to discuss the new law, the new tethering law, ways to keep your pets safe this winter, is Kristen Tullo, Pennsylvania State Director of the Humane Society of the United States. Kristen Tullo, always good to see you. Oh, so good to be here. Thank you for having us. And also joining us is Amy Kunis, the Executive Director of the Humane Society of Greater Harrisburg. Amy, good to see you, too. Good morning. If you have a question or comment, we know that uh, whenever we, we produce a program, having to do with our pets and animals. We get a lot of phone calls, so we have some open lines right now. 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. I was just pointing out to the two of you that the last time you were here last summer, Libre, the most famous dog in Pennsylvania, uh, was here, and I, I just noticed that there are 
there's a mark on our window here, the studio, where his nose rubbed up against the window. <laughs> so we'll just keep that there. And anyone ask, that's uh, that what that's what Libre left behind. So. That's right, leaving his mark. <laughs> that's, that's, it's not a, like a paw mark or anything like that, but it is uh, his, his nose on it. This is part of the Libre's law, right, Kristen? This yes, is te- it sure anti- is. Tethering. It is one of the components of Act 10 of 2017. And Pennsylvania's commitment to improving our animal protection laws are the reason that we now have the most significant strengthening of our cruelty laws in 30 years. And now we have laws to protect dogs from the issues associated with being tied up outside. Well, let's talk about that. That You know, this is something that has been around forever. I mean, you drive in the country, not just in the country, but uh, even in in urban areas, too, and you could always see a dog that was chained on a rope, but usually would have uh, a dog box. I mean, this was a big deal that uh, buy a nice dog box for for your dog. So what's different now? Why was there a need now to change that, to, to really restrict the laws on tethering dogs? Well, the Humane Society of the United States, the Pennsylvania Vet Medical Association, and an increasing number of state and federal agencies, including the USDA, have positions against chronic continuous tethering. And the reason for that is that continuous tethering can cause severe physical damages that range from frostbite to hypothermia and even in some cases death. Um, to medical issues that worsen with extreme temperatures, whether hot or cold, such as respiratory issues or um, arthritis. And then there's also the psychological issues associated with chronic tethering. Um, you know, dogs are social animals. They thrive on interaction with mm-hmm. people. And when they are tied for a, a great length of time, it causes them to suffer greatly. Not just physically, but I would imagine mentally. Absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, that psychological pain can make a normally calm, docile, friendly dog become anxious, aggressive, and um, more likely to bite. The CDC, um, you know, talks about that. And according to the CDC, uh, a tethered dog is more likely to bite than a dog who is not tethered because they become protective and defensive of that that area and because of the crying and the barking associated with that isolation and that physical pain and that feeling from just impending doom for them, really. I mean, never able to get off a a tether. And um, that can also lessen nuisance complaints because you're going to hear less barking and crying when dogs are able to do what they do naturally and socialize. And I I think to kind of answer your question, though, Scott, as to why now and and why all of a sudden are we getting this change in legislation, I think what Kristen is citing is the reason. It's it's taken time um, to get the stats. Um, People have really, really, there's a lot of people that have been very bothered by this for a very long time. And we weren't able to get legislation passed on it. But now that you started to see um, the medical groups, the um, the veterinary associations, the CDC, um, and different larger organizations actually taking like almost a third-party perspective study of this, and we got good facts, we were able to present that to the legislature. Um, And I think that's what helped the legislation get passed. I don't think it's that it's a newer issue. Issue. It's just, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's difficult because you're you're with any passage of animal cruelty, you are telling people what to do with their property. And that's a challenge. And you have to respect that as you're making a change to legislation. So you better come with your facts together. And I think it just took this amount of time to get these these organizations um, to do the studies and bring those facts. And it really helped bolster and prove that we really do need this legislation. Correct me if I'm wrong, but until this law was enacted, even just a few months ago, that there could be a dog that was tethered, maybe had sores, maybe was barking, maybe appeared to be very aggressive, that there were times where you could not do anything about it. 
Correct. There were times. There were times. Um, you know, with a lot of our humane police officers, first of all, first step is education. So nothing in the law prohibits you from knocking on a door and trying to have a conversation with someone. And in those instances, very often that's what we would do. Um, we would talk and see if there was any way we could get them to um, maybe bring the dog in more or um, maybe they would be interested in doing an owner surrender. But the laws were very limited before. Now, if the dog had some type of injury, such as a broken leg or an, uh, you know, an infected eye, we could order medical care. We could we could order that they would show and provide proof of veterinary care, but we couldn't take the dog and we couldn't certainly couldn't take the dog out of that situation. Kristen, how difficult and can a dog that has been tethered its entire life and Mm -hmm. as we've described, maybe aggressive, does a lot of barking, Mm -hmm. antisocial. How difficult is it to rehabilitate a dog like that? You know, well, I think that um, your dogs, and I always say, you can't take the companion out of the companion animal. Dogs are Mm -hmm. social. They want to interact with people. They um, often enjoy interacting with other animals. And so I I really believe that that is just a, a case statement to their resiliency and um, and also adding on to what Amy was mentioning earlier, when we're looking at this new law, you know, this is a really reasonable step in the right direction to protect animals from that continuous tethering. Um, I wanted to share an example from Luzerne County in 2016. Their humane officer there went out to a a home and found two dogs who were tethered continuously for more than nine hours in 90-degree July heat. The humane officer did want to remove those animals from the property, but unfortunately, the animals at that time were not afforded that same protection that they have today under the new law. And five months later, the humane officer was called back out to the property, and the gray dog in this situation had um, died from starvation and dehydration, and the black dog was um, unable to walk. And while the owners were charged uh, with cruelty to animals and did serve jail time, the tragic suffering that these two dogs had to go to could have been prevented under the new Act 10 of 2017. You sent pictures of those dogs mm-hmm. to me, and you're right. It is in those photographs, it's very graphic and mm-hmm. very easy to see that those dogs were not right. taken care of very well. Let's take a phone call from Barry in Lancaster. Barry, you're on the air. Yeah, good morning. How are you guys? We're doing well. Good morning. Morning. Um, thank you. Thank you for having this program. I think this is uh, much past time of being put out there for the general public to become informed about what exactly the new tethering law does. And I was hoping you could explain what is the criteria of which uh, somebody can tether a dog legally, <clears throat> and more importantly, when it becomes illegal what the period of time is that they are allowed to and what conditions uh, or are there conditions that make it so that they cannot. So in other words, if it's a beautiful spring day and the weather lasts in that nice condition for four days and they have a dog box, are they allowed to keep it out there? Or is that nine hour period of time, is that enforceable any time of year? Um, so what are the conditions where it becomes a violation, uh, both in time and and elements. And then additionally, who is it that we can contact when we believe there is a violation of it? Can we call the local police, uh, the Humane Society enforcement officer, or who might it be? Thank you, Barry. You've anticipated all my questions. I don't know what I'm going to talk about for the rest (laughs) of the show now. But uh, exactly what he was asking, I wanted to have the two of you go down through the criteria because this doesn't mean that you cannot tether a dog outside any longer, but there are restrictions on it. Absolutely. Um, well, the first thing that I would want to point out, um, I know Kristen has a um, an anti-tethering fact sheet. We also have one at the Humane Society. Well, and we the, can put it on our website, yep, too. We'll, yeah. we'll get it to you. Yep. Um, we've also tried to distribute it to different um, MDJs, um, so check your local MDJ. So that way you have something in writing. But the first thing I want to point out um, is the dog has to be unattended for this to apply. 
So we are not talking about a scenario where, let's say it is a beautiful spring day and you have the dog tied out and you're mowing the grass, you're doing a little gardening, you know, there's a bowl of water there, you're keeping an eye on the dog. That's not an unattended dog. That's a dog hanging out with you. Or if you're having a barbecue, that's not, and it's that is specifically in the law. The dog has to be unattended. As far as the nine-hour cap, that, that is true. It doesn't matter if it's a beautiful spring day or if the temperature remains at a certain degree or not. It's that in continuous tethering for over nine hours is going to be a problem regardless of the time of year. Um, the other thing that they're going to take a look at is the size of the tether. Um, has to be of a certain length. Um, it has to be uh, longer than the dog's body. And that it's it, there's very specific pieces which are not memorizable. But let's just focus on the size of the tether. That's a good, that's a good, a good way to measure it. Yeah, yep. yeah. And the type of collar that's on the dog. It has to be uh, what's called a swivel latch, which means it can move with the dog. So there are some restrictions there. Um, then you also have the fact, of course, the dog has to have access to food. Uh, and water, the dog has to have a place to get into the shade. So, um, you know, it has to be either either a continuous tree line or or a dog box or something of that that nature. Um, and then you you look at some things on the dog. The dog can't be which which is very similar to what was already in existence. The, there can't be open sores or wounds on the dog. The dog can't be in need of medical care. To to the the you know average person, it's a situation where the dog looks like it should be inside. Um, there also can't be excessive amounts of waste or excrement in the area where the dog is kept. Um, most of these things, when you actually take a look at it, I think for the average person that does take their dog and, and tether their dog outside in a reasonable manner, the, the restrictions and the requirements really aren't anything that I, I think people would look at and say, well, I'm not doing that. It's it's pretty basic stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, make sure the dog can move on the tether freely. Make mm-hmm. sure they have a place to get out of the sun. They have some water. Um, you know, it's not – it's a sanitary area and that you're keeping an eye on them. You know, I always wondered about uh, just what you described uh, when we were talking earlier about dogs that are outside all the time. I've always wondered, why have a dog at all? <laughs> if you're going to yeah. have the dog outside in a box that never comes indoors, you never play with it, okay, you take food to it from time to time. But just what you're describing is that's not a companion. That's mm-hmm. not a pet. If okay, right. Now I have a dog. Right. He or she is outside, and uh, he can do what he what he wants at that point. Well, right. and honestly, that's why, from a humane police officer standpoint, the non-judgmental educational conversation is far more effective and will continue to be more effective than any piece of legislation Mm -hmm. that we could ever hope for. Because many times when you knock on the door and you have a conversation about the dog that's tied out, it goes something like this. My son left for college. He left me with this dog. I'm in a walker. The dog jumps on me. I don't really like the dog, but I feel bad for him. So I've kept him. You know, I feed he sh- the person is feeding them. They're, they're, you know, they're not they're not not taking care of the dog, but they're not they're not providing for the dog's emotional and behavioral needs, and the dog is just tied out. So if you go in and say, well, can we help you with that? You know, many times the person will just sign over the dog, and and they're happy, we're happy, the dog's happy, and we and we move on. Um, so so there are a lot of instances, or a house soiling yep. is a big one yep. why a dog gets turned out. You know, and and for some reason they. That's feel, a nice way of putting it. House soiling. Hey, you know. I don't know if I've ever used that term when it's happened. Yeah, when now it's happened. Right, right. Well, and, I mean, <laughs> so true, so true. And for the first time, you know what Amy is hitting on in our state history, we now have standards in place for dog owners and for enforcement agencies that are helping to protect the well-being of animals in the Commonwealth. Mm. Indoor dog versus outdoor dog. I've heard people say, oh, that breed, he, you know, that dog, that's an outdoor dog because it uh, has a lot of energy, high energy, likes to run Mm -hmm. around the yard, Mm -hmm. all those things. Too big to keep in the house. And again, we're looking at the entire environment in which the animal is in. Um, And so the best part about what Amy just mentioned, the education piece, is that this is a chance for humane officers or enforcement, law enforcement, to be able to build a relationship with the dog owner and talk about the standards that we now have in place for 
um, our state. And the these are the recommendations and these are the standards that we now have in place that protect all animals, all of our dogs um, in Pennsylvania. And uh, we believe are the, the basic steps uh, to ensure um, your animal is able to stay healthy and active and Absolutely. definitely warm in the winter. We have an email here from Loretta. It says the new law is great and goes a long way to protect animals kept outdoors. Unfortunately, dogs that are kept in dog houses and crates seem to slip between the cracks. There are three dogs near us kept outside with little protection. They have a dog house or a shed, but no hay or straw. Their water can easily freeze because their bowls are not heated. When the temperatures were going into the single digits this week, we purchased straw for the dogs because the owners failed to do do it. Uh, does shelter include straw and hay? What can be done to protect these animals that are still exposed to the elements? And Amy, you could definitely talk a lot more about that from a humane officer perspective. Um, but under the law, an animal has to be able to be provided shelter to maintain normal body temperature mm -hmm. and keep that animal dry. Mm-hmm. And again, that would be if a call, if a humane officer or law enforcement officer were to go out to the property, those would be the elements. Um, I do agree that we should be looking at sheltering standards and improving those as a next legislative step in our state. So that question really, I think, is a, a great one and something that we should be looking forward to in the next legislative yeah, session. Yeah, in a situation like this, I would encourage Loretta, um, you know, if she is in our jurisdiction, um, which which does cover Cumberland, Dauphin, uh, and Perry counties, to uh, alert us to the situation, because sometimes we can go out and maybe there's there's another thing that we could we could have a conversation with the owners about. But the shelter itself, as Kristen indicated, does need to um, help the animal maintain their body heat. Uh, so if the shelter isn't doing that then, you know, there are there are some things we could address with the owner. Uh, and as well as the, the frozen water, that is something that we can address with the owner. That's not, they have to have access to potable water. If, if they can't drink it, it's it, they don't have access to it. How in temperatures like we're experiencing today and tonight, it's supposed to go down to like 15 degrees, how can a dog uh, maintain its body temperature even going into a dog box they do actually there there are different dog boxes that are specifically designed for for that purpose and and the straw is is certainly one of them straw is acceptable there is um there are some cases on point as to what can maintain a dog's body heat so fortunately or unfortunately that is that is possible to do we have a follow-up barry who called earlier said can someone uh, can somebody have a dog outside meeting all the criteria food shelter appropriate leash can they have a dog living outside if the owner checks on them once in a while but the dog would stay outside 24 7 with supervision they are able to be outdoor animals with the appropriate um criteria met. but they couldn't they couldn't be on a tether not longer so, than nine hours so, within a 24-hour Absolutely. Hour so you could hypothetically build an enclosed area for your animal um, that has mm -hmm. the appropriate shelter to maintain body heat, the food, the water, um, and all those other requirements, and leave the dog outside. Um, it is now, – now, that's that's saying what the law is now. I think that those cases are going to come up, mm -hmm. and I would not be surprised if you see judges saying, well – you know, we're not going to allow this. This is still going to be a violation if you leave the dog out there because the legislative intent was to stop people from doing this. Um, again, that's completely my opinion. Um, I, you know, it, it, I think that's a little bit of a crafty way to get around the law. But as it stands right now, that's that's yep. what the law says. And th there are some cities, too. You do want to check your local um, city municipality where you live that do have an extreme temperatures. They have code blue, um, such as Pittsburgh, where right. you do have to bring your animals indoors. So also urge people to look at their local municipalities. Yeah, and I, and I think that I, I just, you know, going in front of a judge on, on different issues, I feel like if there's a piece of legislation right now that's good law that says you can't have your dog tethered out when it's below 32, you know, for more than a certain period of time, if your defense is, well, he wasn't tethered, and it's 12 degrees outside and there's six inches of snow, 
you're going to have a problem. I just don't exactly. see, I, I don't see our MDJs like being down with that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and Amy and I are actually presenting the MDJs right now on the new M- law. MDJs yeah. so that everyone knows. Magisterial yeah. district that's, judges. That's, I, and, I knew that, but yeah. I just want to make yeah, sure. No, that's that's the person that's you will great. have to explain yourself to. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. We only have a couple minutes left, okay. and I want to kind of change subjects on you somewhat. Uh, yesterday, there was a story reported on one of the television stations uh, about uh, golden retrievers, uh, golden retriever rescue in Lancaster County that had three dogs that uh, were going to be slaughtered for food in South Korea. And they said there were other dogs yep. that, mm-hmm. were, that were coming. Mm-hmm. So you're aware, yeah, of, you're yes. aware mm-hmm. of the case. Yep. First of all, is that common here in Pennsylvania? I my question was where were they rescued from? I mean, are there people in this country who are going to slaughter these dogs, send the 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 meat to South Korea, where apparently these dogs were going to be used as food? So um, we are at the Humane Society of the United States. Our emergency placement partners are actually working in South Korea to pull Bring dogs them here, yep. from the dog meat trade in South Korea. And we actually just closed our eighth dog meat farm in South Korea. And we... Um, you know, and so this is a huge movement in South Korea where the advocates are really driving that change. And Pennsylvania has been an incredible partner in taking in some of those Korean dogs. Yep. Um, so we are um, definitely, you know, in Pennsylvania, this is not something that we uh, support or I mean, clearly, I mean, this is not, um, you know, and for our partnership with South Korea, we are working diligently to end the dog meat trade. So, I mean, those dogs came from South Korea? Yes. They yeah, did. It's, it's, okay. yeah, it's it's dogs from South Korea coming here, not our, not, uh, not, not like from, someone's right. breeding them no, or something like no, that. No, it's, it's yeah. just an organized effort to shut down the um, dog meat trade. And I understand from the story that uh, there are more on the way. Uh, you know, I wonder, and I only, we only have about 15 seconds left. Can those dogs be rehabilitated? Would they be good? I mean, because they're, oh my gosh, they they're up are, for adoption. They are amazing. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I the hopefulness that you see in their eyes once they've gone through that rehabilitative process is inspiring. Kristen Tullo is the Pennsylvania State Director of the Humane Society of the United States. Amy Kunis, Executive Director of the Humane Society of Greater Harrisburg. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you. Thank you. Marie Cusick fills in tomorrow for me. I'll talk to you on Monday. Smart Talk is produced by WITF as part of our mission to deliver relevant, high-quality programming. Support comes from Capital Blue Cross, which shares WITF's commitment to being a trusted resource in our communities. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by UPMC Pinnacle, who has offered transapical mitral valve repair procedures for more than three years and currently serves as a trial site for over 50 clinical trials. Information at upmcpinnacle.com slash myheart.